Good morning. Hey, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Let me start in verse 9 today. Today's message is going to be a devotion. It's going to be brief. 15 minutes and I'll stop. Because today we have a special uh, desire as a church family to come together in prayer. As you know, last Thursday was the National Day of Prayer. And in honor of that, we as a church family and the elders and I, we wanted to set aside an extra portion of this service for corporate prayer. And so, uh, recognize as we do our brief devotion today, this is not a, a typical service. Um, we are going to be continuing our study in Mark, just looking at a few verses this morning, a quick application. And, uh, and then we're going to devote some time to prayer, and I'll explain that uh, in just a few moments. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, and the title of my message is, When Seeking a Sign. When Seeking a Sign. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Halfway through verse 9 there, 9b as a matter of fact, getting real technical. Mark 8, starting in verse 9. And there are Bibles in the pews if you'd like. It says, And Jesus sent them away, the 4,000 who had been gathered for a meal. And immediately, He got into the boat with His disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. Now, where are we in our story in Mark here this morning? If you'll recall last Sunday, we were looking at the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. 4,000 Gentile men and undoubtedly many other women and children. And Jesus had been in the region of Decapolis on the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee for a number of days, perhaps a month. And he was ministering to the Gentile peoples. He was taking the gospel, the gospel of salvation that was designed at first for Israel to remind Israel of their heritage. To remind Israel that God was once again coming to redeem them. Coming to help them. Coming to save them. And he was taking that message of hope, of redemption, of life forever with God, and He was giving it also to the Gentiles. And we see that occurring with the story of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 who looks for crumbs underneath the table. We see that with Jesus healing the deaf mute, a Gentile man in Decapolis who could not hear and could not speak, perhaps indicative of His inability also to hear the message of the Kingdom of God. And Jesus healed him opened up his ears, allowed him to hear, allowed him to proclaim God's good news. And then finally, we see Jesus feeding 4,000 Gentiles as if to say, you are now recipients of God's blessing, just like Israel. But now the time has come for Jesus to move back over to the Jewish side of the lake, if you will, on the Sea of Galilee. And so we see here that immediately Jesus sends the people away and He gets into the boat with His disciples and goes to the region of Dalmanutha on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And then it says, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Jesus, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. It's safe to say that this request for a miraculous sign was not entirely genuine. The Pharisees, upon seeing Jesus in their region, were not looking to become men of faith in Jesus. Regardless of any kind of sign He may have performed or may not have performed, they weren't looking to put their confidence, their hope, and their faith in Jesus Christ. What they were looking to do was discredit Jesus. Behind their intent in asking Jesus to authenticate Himself by a sign was an evil desire to somehow call into question the divine origin of Jesus' teaching and ministry. They weren't looking to believe in Him. They were looking to discredit Him. Now nevertheless, Jesus, at this point in the story, we haven't read further, Jesus very well could have authenticated Himself. He could have gone on to perform a miraculous sign and said, see, indeed I am of divine origin. Indeed, my message is from God. In fact, Jesus had previously authenticated His teaching and ministry on a number of occasions. A number of occasions. Do you remember Mark 2? In Mark 2, a man is lowered through the roof. A paralyzed man is lowered through the roof. This man could not walk. And Jesus is teaching in a house and the roof comes apart because there's so many people they couldn't bring him in. And they lower him down through the roof and Jesus looks upon the man. He sees the man's faith and He pronounces the man's sins forgiven. Somewhat of an odd thing to do in light of his paralysis. As he pronounces this man forgiven, the scribes begin to murmur in their hearts. They're listening to Jesus. And they hear Him say, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And they think, wait a minute. Only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus perceives their thoughts. Let's pick up the story. Let's read the ending of it in Mark 2. Verse 6 through 12. It says this And some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts Why does this man, Jesus, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Verse 9 Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. That you cannot prove, Jesus. They're thinking in their hearts. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your home. Immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. 
that, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What is Jesus doing in Mark 2? He's authenticating Himself. He's authenticating Himself. He's saying, you want to know where my power comes from? You want to know where my authority comes from? So be it. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. And I'm going to show you my authenticity as an authority of God. So Jesus had authenticated Himself time and time again, folks. And He could have done it in our story today. But you see, from Mark 2 to Mark 8, about one to two years have passed. One to two years have passed. And Jesus is now tired and worn out from the unbelief and the stubborn hearts of the Pharisees. He's worn out. Here in Mark 8, we, saw, we see Jesus as one who is tired and frustrated by yet another request for a miraculous sign. So it's not surprising that Jesus becomes deeply disturbed this time with the Pharisees' request. You know, when we look elsewhere in Scripture, we see that many, many times one of the clearest things that God despises the most is when He is tested time and time and time again by His very creation. There is hardly a greater example of this than what we see in the story over 3,500 years ago. The story of the Exodus generation. Remember Israel? They were enslaved in Egypt. And, they, and God brought them out of Egypt away from Pharaoh's hand and sent them off toward the Promised Land. But they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they grew tired and weary of God despite His many, many times of provision for them. And this is what it says in the book of Numbers. It says, because this is, this is the Lord speaking now to Moses. Because all these men who have seen My glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put Me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded My voice, verse 23, they certainly shall not see the land, Israel, of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected Me see it. What was their crime? The crime of the Exodus generation was that they saw God take them miraculously out of Egypt. They saw God do unbelievable plagues and signs. They saw God provide for them crossing the Red Sea, provide manna for them in the wilderness, time and time again, water, food, provision. And yet they tested God and tested God and tested God and refused to exhibit faith, trust, devotion, and confidence in Him. And so the Lord looked upon the Exodus generation and says, as a result, as a consequence of your stubbornness, constantly putting me to the test, God says, you will not be the generation that enters the land. 
And so it was the second generation who were recipients of God's blessing. The psalmist in chapter 95 reminds us of the approach that we're to take toward God. Not one that is hardened by making demands of God or giving Him ultimatums or endlessly testing Him. Look what the psalmist says. It says, you'll you'll be very familiar with this psalm, but notice the ending of it. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Notice this. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As in the day of trial in the wilderness. He's speaking about the Exodus generation. When your fathers tested Me, they tried Me, though they saw My work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know My ways. So I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. The rest that was available for them in the land of Israel. Verse 9, When your fathers tested Me, they tried Me, though they saw My work. Jesus, like God the Father before Him, refuses to capitulate to the deceitful requests of the Pharisees because they had already seen His work and yet they continued to try Him. Back to our story, verse 12 and 13. And Jesus sighed deeply in His Spirit and said, why does this generation, this generation, familiar from Psalm 95, He's likening them to the Exodus generation. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Friends, there comes a point when God's revelation, when God's revealing Himself to His creation, there comes a point when an unbelieving person or an unbelieving group of people a stubborn person, a stubborn group of people, when they persistently refuse to believe God's revelation, God begins to withhold Himself from that people, from that generation. When people see God's revelation and persistently refuse to accept it, to believe it, to embrace it as their is the truth of God, there comes a time when God says, no longer. No longer will I be revealing Myself to you in the way that I have been because of your stubborn hearts. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew. Matthew 7.6, He says, don't throw precious pearls before swine. Don't throw the precious truths of God before those who are too stubborn to accept it. In Mark 4, we see time and time again 
Jesus, we, we looked at this earlier on in our study in Mark, in Mark 4, verses 23 to 25, Jesus speaks about those who would have humble ears and humble hearts and who would receive God's revelation and, and receive more of it in light of their humbleness, in light of their desire to hear greater of the revelation of God. He says this in Mark 4. It's not on the screen behind you. But he says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Take care what you listen to. By the standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has the revelation of God, whoever accepts it, to him more shall be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Folks, the Pharisees had reached a boiling point. They, excuse me, Jesus had reached a boiling point in light of the Pharisees. Jesus had had enough. He had had enough of their refusal to acknowledge His divine authority, let alone His office as Messiah. They refused to believe the countless signs and miracles that Jesus repeatedly performed right before their eyes, even in the synagogue. They were stubborn, and they were hard. And Jesus was no longer going to reveal God's truth to them on account of their great sin. He says very, very strongly, Assuredly, I say to you, no sign, no more signs shall be given to this generation. And He left them, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Briefly, what, what can we learn from this story? So rather, it's a, it's a small story, a few verses. Is there something here for us today? Is there something here that we can grab hold of and walk out that door and be mindful of today? In fact, I'm hopeful that the application that I have is helpful for our time of prayer. Let's take a look. First, seeking a miraculous sign from God in and of itself is not wrong. I want to be clear on that. And that wasn't really so much that... the clear teaching of this passage, but elsewhere in Scripture. Asking God for the miraculous, friends, is not wrong. It's not wrong. We prayed for a miracle two weeks ago. We prayed that God would heal Greg Thorne's heart, a friend of ours from Coast Bible Church who moved to Missouri. His heart had fluid around it. The doctors say there's no way you can deal with this other than surgery. And he asked us to pray and he asked his church his wife's church up in Washington State to pray, and many others around the country were praying for him. A week later, they took another uh, echocardiogram, and the doctor said, I don't know how to tell you this, but your heart's perfectly fine now. That was a miracle. And we asked for that. We asked for that as a community, and that was good. And, and amazingly, God answered that prayer. I, I still am in awe of this. And, I, and I'm sure many of you are as well. God answers prayer, folks, and we need to be asking Him even for those miraculous things to come about. But, number two, it does become sin. It only becomes sin when we are willfully withholding from God our faith, trust, devotion, and or confidence in Him. This is what the Pharisees were doing, friends. They were asking for a sign, but at the same time, they were simultaneously withholding from God faith, trust, devotion, loyalty, 
confidence. They had no confidence He would do any kind of sign. When we're asking God for the miraculous, if we are simultaneously withholding these things from God, we better be careful. Because God does not like someone who asks Him for the miraculous and yet has no faith, has no trust, has no devotion or loyalty, no confidence that what he or she asks will be accepted by God, will be taken care of. You know, I'm, 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 this point two here reminds me of people who give God ultimatums. God, I want you to do this, and if you don't, then forget it. Then I'm done with you. If you don't heal my mom or my dad, or if you don't, if you don't watch over my child, if you don't protect them, if you don't fix this problem or that problem, if you don't fix my problems at work, whatever they may be, God, if you don't do that, then I'm, I'm out of here. Folks, demands, ultimatums on God, you're willfully withholding your faith and devotion to Him. And God takes that very seriously. So when you ask Him, ask Him with humility, ask Him in full confidence. Third and finally, when we ask God for a miracle, let us ask Him in faith, believing that He can provide it in accordance with His will. And those texts I've listed there are related, not directly related, but related to this topic in Mark 11 and James 1. Asking in faith. Asking with confidence. Believing that we've received what we ask for if it is in accordance with His will. That is how we ask for the miraculous. That is how we approach God when seeking a sign. When seeking for Him to do the great things that we should ask Him to do. So I hope that this is helpful for us. As we go to prayer in just a few moments, I urge each of you, let's ask God. As we pray and petition Him, let's ask Him in full confidence. Let's ask Him with total loyalty to Him, believing that we will receive it if it be in accordance with His will. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are a people group who does not want to withhold from You our faith, our love, our devotion. And we know we can be susceptible to that. Father, I know there have been times in my life where I've asked You for things and I've, I've asked it in pride. I've asked it with my finger in the air, saying, God, if You don't do this, I will withhold from You my devotion or withhold from You my love. Father, forgive us for those times. Forgive me for those times. Father, may we never speak to You in those manners. May we approach You with bended knee in humility, knowing that You can do the miraculous, but You ask us to ask for it with full confidence, full faith. Father, may this time of prayer as we approach it in just a few moments, may it be a time where we ask You for great and mighty things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.